If you would, please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Psalms chapter 22, and we will be reading verses 1 through 31 this morning. If you would like to follow along using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find this passage on page 457. As you are able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word. Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my brother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravaging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, and companies of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all of the offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not help himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We continue today in our series in the Psalms, focusing on Psalms that point us to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah predicted in the Psalms, a series entitled Songs of the Shepherd King, and today we're looking at a Psalm that points us to the cross, how appropriate that as we come to the Lord's table, that that's where we would stop and meditate a while. Our ladies have set us up nicely in the offertory, for today we indeed are going to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. What would you say if I asked you is the most important speech or utterance of words in human history? Maybe in our own history you might think of something like the Gettysburg Address of Abraham Lincoln or the simple words of Neil Armstrong as he stepped out onto the moon, one small step for man. Maybe Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, or FDR's pronouncement of a day that will live in infamy, the start of World War II for America. I remember in my own lifetime Ronald Reagan standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate declaring, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, or William Wilberforce's speech that began the, the, the motion towards the abolition of slavery in the West. All of these speeches were profound and impactful and important in their time and for the history of the world, but I would submit that they pale in comparison to the singular greatest speech ever given by any human on the face of the earth. This speech was given by a convicted criminal at his execution. The words of this speech were written down by the criminal's ancestor a thousand years before he even spoke them. It was delivered on Good Friday, nearly 2,000 years ago. And the speech begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it concludes with, it is finished. These words from the cross, in my estimation, are the most important, most pivotal words ever spoken in the entirety of human history. History itself rests 
and hinges upon those words from the cross. In Acts chapter 2, in reference to a different psalm, Psalm 16, Peter says of David, the author of that psalm as well, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. We don't know for certain if there was a particular event in David's life that parallels Psalm 22. However, as in Psalm 16, David is clearly in the role of prophet here. The subject is clearly Jesus' crucifixion, as we will see. Crucifixion as a means of execution would have been foreign to David. It wasn't invented until the Romans did many generations later. And there is no known event in the life of David in which we can connect this psalm to that it might be referencing. As we study it today, we're going to see that the writers of the New Testament also see Psalm 22 in this light as prophecy concerning the cross of Christ. A thousand years before the Lord Jesus was nailed to a cross, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself, breathed these words into the heart of David. The great shepherd king of Israel penned the very words that his ancestor Jesus, the Messiah, the greater shepherd king, would appropriate for himself in his greatest moment of soul agony. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us seven sayings of Jesus from the cross that are usually referred to as the seven last words, often preached on Good Friday. The first three of these seven statements referred to individuals that were around the cross that Jesus recognized. You may remember the first one was directed towards those that were performing the execution in which Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then Jesus acknowledges the criminal that has expressed faith, who is hanging beside him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. The third statement, he looks to his mother. And in his suffering and agony, he considers her care as she goes on without him. And she entrusts Mary to the care of his dearly beloved friend and apostle, John. Even in his dying moments, Jesus' mind and heart was directed towards others' suffering and not upon his own suffering. However, at noon on that Friday, it changed. For darkness covered the earth, the Gospels tell us, for three hours. At the time of day when the sun shines brightest, darkness consumed the light, and the light of the world became sin for us. Jesus, the beloved Son of God, suffered the penalty that was due to us under the wrath of God. As Reverend Goodwin reminded us last week, 
And as the apostle instructs in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The apostle Matthew tells us in his gospel account that at about the ninth hour or three o'clock in the afternoon, in the pitch dark blackness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is at this moment, the moment of Jesus' greatest anguish, forsaken by the Father as the sin bearer, that David's prophecy of the cross of the shepherd king begins. And so, together this morning, we take the difficult journey that Psalm 22 puts before us. As we consider the crucifixion, may the Lord enable us to find blessing in the midst of the suffering of our Savior. In verses 1 through 11, we see a cross of torment. Reading again in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This opening statement of the psalm is jarring, to say the least. The two cries of my God, my God, are followed by two questions of why. Why have you forsaken me, and why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? He cries aloud again, right on the heels of that. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. It's impossible for our finite mortal minds to understand the mental anguish and torment of the cross that fell upon the Lord Jesus in those three hours. And additionally, we have to confess that to fully comprehend the dynamics that are playing out here with our one singular God and three persons navigating the forsaken experience of the cross is impossible. We can never get our minds around that and fully comprehend it. But we must proclaim and believe what is true according to God's word and not go beyond it. The mysteries of God belong to him alone. And we must walk in faith and contentment with what he has revealed to us. Certainly the torment of the cross that Jesus endured is an unimaginable suffering. And because he was forsaken by the Father, we will never be forsaken. We have his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us because we belong to Christ. In verses 3 through 5, we are reminded that while this forsakenness and darkness is real for Jesus, it is not his only reality. For God is holy and trustworthy. His deliverance and rescue are sure for those who trust in him, and they will not be utterly put to shame. 
And if this has been true for God's people through history, as the psalm looks back, those who have come before, how much more will the Father deliver and rescue his only Son, who suffers on the cross? And if the Son can place his full trust in the Father for deliverance, so can we too. For our Heavenly Father will rescue us in our greatest time of need and in our despair. He will not forsake us. The torment of the cross continues to plague Jesus as the psalm unfolds. And it not only comes from within his own mind, but it also comes from those that are witnesses to the crucifixion. The bystanders, the onlookers. The scene in Matthew's gospel is horrible. And it's a direct fulfillment and and quote of what we see here. We find that in Matthew 27 where we read, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And then these bystanders, unknowing, unknowingly fulfilling and quoting directly from the psalm. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Jesus is laughed at. He is scorned and despised. The onlookers protrude their lips and wag their heads at the perfect son of God. He's derided, jeered, and called a fraud. Well, after all, if he was who he claimed to be, where was God now? Where was his father in saving and in rescuing his son? Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Oh, what horrible anguish of spirit and mind our Savior suffered under the will of God and at the hands of wicked men. In verse 9, the psalm directs us back to God's faithfulness. But this time, not merely to God's faithfulness to the past generations, but to the incarnate Son personally. The astounding truth of Christmas, of Advent, of the Incarnation, of the Son of God being born of a woman, meant that the eternal Christ became dependent on the sustaining power of God like any other human baby. The birth of a child is a miraculous occurrence on many levels. But just the fact that this little one lives and grows and survives in the womb and and at birth is an amazing reality. And while babies are dependent upon their mothers for life, ultimately, all life depends on the creator and sustainer of life. Even Jesus Christ, the Son of God in his humanity, was a helpless babe in need of the Father's faithfulness. As Jesus finds himself alone on the cross with no one to help, 
he's reminded of the faithfulness of God and draws comfort from it, even as we draw comfort as we reflect upon God's faithfulness to us. In verse 12, there's a shift in this suffering on the cross. For now the soul's torment is accompanied by the physical torture of Jesus' body. He's been forsaken by the Father, derided by the onlookers, and now he suffers physically at the hands of his executioners. We have here a very graphic and disturbing picture of crucifixion. Some have suggested that it is the most horrific method of execution ever devised by the human mind. Jesus' executioners are described as wild, ravenous beasts. And they surround him. He's poured out like water, being emptied of his very life. His hands, having been nailed to the wood and holding him up by the weight of his body, pulls down on itself, causing his bones to fall out of joint in excruciating pain. His heart is weak and failing. He loses all of his physical strength as he succumbs to the awful effects of being crucified and his mouth is parched and dry and he's thirsty. As we come to the second half of verse 16, I want you to notice here, it's, it's worth noting that David employs a poetic device in the psalm that is used for emphasis in Hebrew poetry. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 12, <clears throat> excuse me, he labels the executioners consecutively as bulls, lions, dogs, and men, or evildoers. And then if you go to verse 20, he lists the same four in opposite order, employing a chiastic structure of poetry. He starts with man, or those that bear the sword, and then dogs, lions, and bulls, which he calls wild oxen. Think of this structure in terms of steps up each side of the same hill. Bulls, lions, dogs, man, and then in reverse, man, dogs, lions, and bulls. In this instance, it's important to look at the pinnacle of this poetic structure that he employs to see what is being pointed to, to see where the emphasis should be. And so we read there in between, in verse second part of verse 16, these words, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Here at the very center point of the psalm, we have, along with the opening cry and the closing statement of the psalm, as we will see in a moment, a clear prophetic reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. It is unmistakable. In Matthew 7, we have a direct correlation to what we've just read, where the gospel says, and when they had crucified him, the piercing of his hands and feet, 
they divided his garments among them by casting lots. The accuracy with which David prophesied of the anointed one's crucifixion is nothing short of miraculous. If this does not give you confidence in the authority and inspiration of the word of God, I don't know what would. Find encouragement in this, child of God, for the Bible is God's faithful and an errant revelation to us. You may have confidence and assurance in its truth. It affirms itself. The series of pleas for deliverance ends abruptly in verse 21 with a confident assertion. You have rescued me from the hands of the wild oxen. The sentence there is smoothed out for us in the English translation, but in the original, the phrases are reversed. It reads, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me. So the whole section that we've just gone through ends with this confident statement of the agonizing Savior from the cross who began with, why? Now with, you have rescued me. Verses 1 through 21 have given us a grueling account of the torment and torture of the crucifixion. And here at the end of that account, the Lord Jesus has the assurance that his deliverance is at hand. The psalm makes an abrupt shift. It's almost jarring. From that torment and torture to now triumph and victory. From being forsaken by God to worshiping him in thanksgiving. From internal anguish and external persecution to rejoicing and feasting. The next section begins in verse 22. And here, this verse is quoted by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, which gives us insight into the psalm in reference to Jesus redeeming his people through suffering on the cross, we read in Hebrews. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, end quote. Here we have a direct quote of verse 22 with the author of Hebrews telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how to interpret this psalm. The speaker of Psalm 22 is clearly Jesus Christ himself. The one who redeemed us through the cross and now unashamedly calls us brother and sister. Even as Jesus dies, the triumphant cross points us to the resurrection, the defeat of death and Satan. In the wake of bearing the eternal wrath of God upon the cross, at the conclusion of those three hours of darkness and suffering the eternal weight of our judgment, Jesus, in the midst of his people, leads us in triumphant worship of the Father. It's astounding. And it is the hope of the resurrection that the psalm leads us to next. 
Jesus is now assured of the Father's favor again. And as he considers the work of salvation wrought in his suffering, he begins to cast his eyes away from himself again and towards his bride, the church, those who he has now purchased with his blood. The psalm tells us that he leads the offspring of Jacob in worship first. For the good news of the triumph of the cross begins with the Jews, as we're told in the New Testament. But in verse 27, Jesus' thoughts move beyond his own people to the ends of the earth and all the families of the nations. His atonement is not limited to the nation of Israel, for he is calling to himself a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. In verse 30, we see that call going out not just to those in Jesus' day, but to the coming generations, those yet unborn. Beloved, the triumph of the cross extends to the far reaches of the globe and through all the long ages of time. Its scope is complete, leaving no people group and no time period untouched. And when he was still hanging on the cross, he saw this triumph. He saw himself as king of kings and lord of lords. He saw you and me, his affection reaching out through the ages to all who were afar off. And one day, this glorious worship that began with Jesus at the cross will culminate with all of the saints together in worship, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The psalm concludes with verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteous to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That he's done what? That he's made a way. That his righteousness is for his people. That the work of salvation is complete. That our rescue has come. A number of scholars believe that since there is no object for the verb in the Hebrew here, and one must be supplied that it could be translated, it is done, or it is finished. Either way, the result is the same. God has done it. It is finished. The plan of redemption has been fulfilled on the cross of triumph, and we are saved from the wrath to come. In the Gospel of John, in his account of the crucifixion, he says that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work of redemption was successful, completed in victory and in triumph over sin and hell. The beginning of the sermon, I told you that I believe these to be the most important words ever spoken in the history of the world. Most speeches and those who make them come and go. At best, they're limited 
in scope to the temporal world of that time and space. But Jesus' words from across eternity past call out beyond the confines of time and space. For you see, David didn't invent these words a thousand years before Jesus spoke them. No, these words were determined in eternity past in the secret council of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are words bringing to bear the will of God and the plan of the ages for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. Each of us are confronted with these words from the cross, whether we want to be or not. They are unavoidable. So the question comes, was Jesus forsaken by the Father for you? When he finished his saving work on the cross, was he thinking of you? Did he bear your sin there that you might live with him for eternity? If you're confident in answering those questions with a yes, then let me ask you a follow-up question. Have you forsaken yourself for the one who was forsaken for you? Are you daily denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus? For this is the calling on your life and on my life if we belong to him. So come today and seek strength and grace as you commune with him to follow him in new obedience. Maybe you can't answer my questions in the affirmative you're not sure if Jesus died for you. You don't know if you're part of his completed work or his kingdom. I have good news for you. You can know. For the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be Saved. Period. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Period. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Period. This is the good news. This is news worth rejoicing about, worth worshiping God for. You cannot ignore Jesus and his words from the cross. For to ignore him is to reject him. And to reject him is to perish in your sin. But the call of salvation is for all who will believe. Come and confess him as Lord and Savior now. Don't delay. And so, brothers and sisters, we come together now to a celebration of God's faithfulness to us, a feast in which the afflicted are invited to come and be satisfied. 
a meal of love and fellowship with the Lord himself and with one another. As we come to the table today, may our hearts be filled with thanksgiving for the cross of the shepherd king. And as we remember Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let us survey the cross and his suffering and mourn over our sin. But also, as we hear his words, he has done it. It is finished. May we rejoice in the completed work of our salvation and give thanks to our wonderful God. Let's pray. Father, only you are capable of bringing together the moment of greatest anguish and the moment of greatest triumph in the history of your world. We struggle to wrap our minds around how those things can coexist. And yet as we come to your table, we are reminded that they do. For it is through the sacrifice of your son on our behalf that we are now brothers and sisters with him, heirs to eternity and to all the gifts that you give. And so, Lord, as we come together now as a family, and as we sit around your table, fellowshipping with you and fellowshipping with one another, would you help us to do it with great joy and thankfulness for what Christ has done. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat>